Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation 4, 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. As I read, feel free to follow along in your Bible or on the screens. Hear from God's word. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word. At this time, children ages three through kindergarten are dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. What a privilege to worship in prayer, to worship in song, to worship in declaring gospel truth. Now let's worship over the word. Would you pray with me one more time? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the honor and worth and treasured preciousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, make clear Revelation 1, 4 through 8 to the precious believers gathered here in this room and by live stream and recording. We want to hear from you a fresh word that fuels our faith, enlarges our vision, emboldens our witness, banishes our sin, and sends us on mission to glorify your name in our callings, in our homes, in our relationships, in every way that this world is darkened. We want to be witnesses for light, even if they try to snuff us out like they tried to snuff you out. You have overcome the world, and the light of God's witness will not be extinguished until you return. So come, Lord Jesus, use us in power by the Spirit, and come bodily, soon we pray, into the world you've created. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. How do you comfort a church in crisis? How do you comfort a church in crisis? The church that John is writing the book of Revelation to is a church in crisis. It was the first century, about 95 AD. John is an exile because the emperors don't like Christians talking and teaching, so he picked the leader, the apostle, the only one left at the time. All the other apostles had been killed, martyred for the faith. John is silenced by being put out on an island, and God says to the emperors, you think you're going to silence my apostle John? I'm going to give him a vision out on the island. And he's going to write it down and it's going to make it back to the churches that I intend to encourage. John addresses his letter to Asia Minor, modern-day western Turkey, and he writes to seven churches. It's not specifically just those seven churches that need to hear the word of God. They are the full number of churches. They represent all the churches of the world at the time, all the churches of the world since then. We're included in the seven churches. We need to hear every one of the seven words that we're going to hear next week and the weeks following. They all apply to all churches everywhere. That's what the word seven means. It means completeness. 
These are the church that God is writing to through John, through the angel, and through the witness of Jesus Christ. We're a church in crisis, are we not? Christianity Today just put out an article last week, this last week, 72% of all pastors in the United States of America plan to quit their pastorate sometime this last year. Who do you think's having a field day when three quarters of all the pastors say, I would love to find a way to quit? The devil. Thankfully, because of a mercy of the Lord, they didn't all quit. But that 72% of the pastors are thinking of quitting is breathtaking. We're a church in crisis in this country, aren't we? Because churches have stepped back from declaring God's design for sexual purity, God's design for marriage, God's design for preserving unborn life and preborn life, God's design for all uh, 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 the handling of money and the handling of all manner of ethical questions. Why has the church shrunk back from declaring those things? Because the church has shrunk back from declaring the glory of the gospel. That's why they don't have a word to say about sexual purity. They don't have an answer for what to do with it. They've shrunk back from declaring the full-orbed biblical gospel. And why have they shrunk back from the gospel? They've shrunk back from declaring the full-orbed glory of God. Moralistic, therapeutic deism, says Christopher Wright, is exactly what you get in most churches. Moralistic, just do what I tell you. Therapeutic will just make you feel better. Deism, God is somewhere, but he's not here. What is John the Apostle, the only one alive at his time, out on the island of Patmos, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Holy Scripture, Having the authority of being an apostle, having the authority of being a revelatory spokesman, having the authority of being one exiled for Christ, what does he say to the church in crisis? What does he say to the first century church in 95 AD? What does he say to the church in the United States of America in 2022? The church in 95 AD was under persecution in severe and in multifaceted ways, four ways that I can see so far in my study. First, the Roman emperors Domitian and Nero and others called themselves gods and they said, if you're part of the Roman Empire, which these churches were, you have to bow down and worship us as God. Call me God and worship me, Domitian said. Faithful Christians would not and so therefore they were persecuted, arrested, sometimes killed. Jewish legalists were rising up because 25 years or so before, Jerusalem fell in 70 AD under the hands of the Romans. There was no Jerusalem to go back to to find Judaism and to find the, the, the steps of Jesus and the beginnings of Christianity. It had fallen to the Romans and it was defiled and profaned. Now the Jews were rising up and they were saying, maybe it was the Christians who caused this problem. These Christians are getting Rome angry and Rome comes back and takes it out on Jerusalem. Some were saying that, the historians record. So the Jewish legalists, what John will call a synagogue of Satan shortly, 
in the chapters that follow, were opposing Christians. They were opposed by Rome. They were opposed by Jewish legalism. They were opposed by the demonic. You can see the demonic forces raging against Christians all through the book of Revelation. We'll see it repeatedly over and over. Mockery, ridicule, ostracizing, unfair treatment, hatred, disdain, and all manner of opposition is inspired by, tempted by demons as they move on human beings to harm Christians. It has always been that way. It will always be that way, Jesus said, until he comes. And fourthly, they were opposed by the doubt and the wranglings and the struggles within. Am I a phony? Does my struggle with sin make me a fake Christian? I see a law at work in my members that's not of God. The very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing that. Does that make me a phony? They struggled with that internal doubt and opposition as well. What does John say to comfort a church in crisis? What does John say to comfort this church in crisis? He said in verse 3, we saw last week, anybody who reads this letter aloud is going to receive a blessing. Anybody who hears it and anybody who keeps it, who obeys it, is going to receive a tremendous and a special blessing. What is that blessing that you're going to speak, John, to comfort this church in crisis? The answer is verses 4 through 8. I take verses 4 through 8 as the entire summary of the whole book of Revelation. This is the book of Revelation in theological summary. The entire book of Revelation is bound up in these five verses. I see four themes. Here they are. Total grace, triune glory, transforming love, and triumphant arrival. Total grace, triune glory, transforming love, and triumphant arrival. Let's look at each of those. First, look at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Grace is God's forgiveness and power for living the newborn Christian life. Grace, according to the Scriptures, is in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to uh, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. That's Paul's writing to the Ephesians. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Grace is both pardon and power. Grace is both forgiveness and fortitude. And this twofold vision of grace always leads to peace, that sense of oneness with me and myself and my peace between me and God and peace between me and other persons. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But why do I call this total grace? I want you to see what I call total grace. I want you to feel the weight of what John is saying to the crisis church in the first century and what the Spirit of God is saying to the crisis church here in the United States today. John writes grace and peace to you in the original language. It's so clear. It's coming to you. In other words, get ready what you're about to read and absorb throughout the rest of this letter I'm writing to you is grace and peace coming to you. Then look with me. Turn to the very end of Revelation, the very last verse in the Bible, in fact, Revelation 22, verse 21. Look what John writes there. This is after the entire 
letter has been written, read, and enjoyed. The very last verse says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Or, the grace of the Lord Jesus continue to remain with you. May it be with you. It's coming to you at the beginning. May it remain with you at the very end. What does that mean? It means every single verse and every single idea and every single detail between the beginning and the end of Revelation is God's means of grace to you. This is enveloping the entire book of Revelation, and the entire book of Revelation is meant to be received as grace to you. It's coming. Get ready. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, grace coming to you. And then when it's come to you, you've read it and absorbed the whole book. The very last verse is, may grace stay with you. Everything in the book of Revelation is meant to be grace. Instruction to seven churches, it's all grace. Vision of the Lamb in heaven, the seals, the bowls, the trumpets, the beasts and the two witnesses, the woman and the dragon, it's all grace. The seven angels and the seven plagues, the great prostitute and the wrath of God, the rejoicing in heaven, the millennium, new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem, it's all grace. This is how a crisis church is comforted. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace is lavished upon us in this pictograph, this scripture-saturated, symbol-rich pictograph in the book of Revelation. Why would John emphasize grace to a persecuted church? Why is it important for me to emphasize grace to this church today? Because John, by the Spirit, wants to make sure that the early church, fledgling, hard-pressed, and persecuted, are not under God's condemnation. That the persecution they're experiencing is not because God is ticked off at them and angry. Are you going through persecution as a Christian? Have you ever experienced persecution as a Christian? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How are you going to make sure that you are not getting it wrong and thinking God is somehow condemning or punishing you? Read in the history of the church. Read in the history of this American church. I've done some reading in this last week just for an illustration I'll share with you in a little bit. Over and over and over, preachers would say from the pulpits, pray that I never say this. Pray that you never hear this from any teacher from this pulpit. That any hardship that Christians are going through is God punishing them for their sin. It's false. It's a lie. Why? Because Christ died on the cross and absorbed all the wrath of God for sinners, past, present, and future sin. Amen? That's the gospel we proclaim. For anyone to come along and say there must be more punishment from God for Christians is to say Christ's death wasn't enough. And that's blasphemous. Why emphasize grace, John? So that the persecuted church and believers I know in all of these seven churches and the many they represent would not say, God's angry with me. That's why I'm persecuted. It's not true. The devil will tell you that. Your flesh will tell you that. Bad preachers will tell you that. Don't hear it. It's not true. That's total grace. Everything written in the book of Revelation is meant to be grace to you, grace to you, grace to you. Triune glory. Look where this grace and peace comes from. 
Second half of verse four, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. This is a triune glory. That's where everything's coming from. Church in, in per, uh, Thyatira or Sardis, or churches in Asia Minor, churches in North America, churches in the Northland, what you must hear, what you must see, what you must be caught up in is a vision of the triune glory of God. You must see that his grace and his peace comes from the Father who was, who is, and who is to come. You must see that it comes from the Holy Spirit who is the sevenfold Holy Spirit. And you must see that it comes from Christ himself who is ruler of the kings of the earth, a faithful witness and firstborn from the dead. This is triune glory. God is described as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. It's a reference to his name Yahweh I am that I am. It's a reference to the fact that God the Father is above time and eternity. In fact, God holds time and eternity in his hands. The hand that rocks eternity is the hand that rules the world, says this sentence describing God the Father. And the Holy Spirit is described as the sevenfold Holy Spirit. Listen to Revelation 5, 6. This helps us understand how the Holy Spirit can be described as sevenfold or with seven eyes. Between the throne and four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. A lamb with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This passage here in Revelation 1 as well as the one I just quoted in Revelation 5, 6 are built upon Zechariah 4, 6 and 7 and verse 10. Listen to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone and shouts of grace, grace to it. Then he explains how the Spirit works his grace in verse 10. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Why is the Holy Spirit here in Revelation 1 called the sevenfold Spirit? Why is it the seven spirits or the sevenfold Spirit? The answer is twofold based on Zechariah and his background to this passage. First, the Holy Spirit is roving as if by eyes across the whole earth. There's no place where the Holy Spirit is not seeing and, and controlling and ruling. There is no place that he has successfully resisted. Oh, he's being resisted everywhere. He might be resisted in my heart or in yours right now, but he'll never be anywhere successfully resisted. He will overcome all resistance. A second thing it means is wherever the Spirit is moving, He's shouting grace and He's leveling mountains into plains. Wherever the Spirit is moving, He's shouting grace, grace to it, and He's moving mountains down low to become an open plain. Wherever the Spirit is moving in China, wherever the Spirit is moving in Russia or North Korea or Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles or your town or my town, Wherever the Spirit of God is moving in 
the hemispheres and on the continents and throughout time. He's declaring grace, grace to it. There is grace from the Holy Spirit right now until the final day of Christ's judgment to come. There is an, a, a shouting of grace by the Holy Spirit across the face of the earth. Do you hear it? Do you receive it? There's grace and the Spirit is declaring it. If he can level mountains, how much easier can the grace and power of the Holy Spirit take down kings and tyrants, presidents and religions, cultures and wicked laws? In the Trinity, there is the Father, then there's the Spirit named, and finally the Son who is given three identifications. Think how these comfort the persecuted believers, faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of kings on the earth. How comforting these would be to the persecuted church. Jesus stood before Pilate and made his faithful witness, even unto death for you, persecuted church in the first century. So be faithful when you refuse to bow down before Domitian and call him your God. Be faithful, even unto death. The very plan of God was that Christ would go to the cross and die for your sins. The very plan of God is that you might also be a martyr, a faithful witness, and die knowing Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. So don't fear death. Die if you must be swept up into Christ, for to live is Christ and to die is gain. Firstborn from the dead. That means there are secondborn from the dead. Jesus was firstborn from the dead. It's the most important dividing line of all history. And here, the dramatic point of history is now past. Everyone who follows Christ in being resurrected out of the grave is the secondborn. So even if they do kill you, you're going to pop right up again. They can't keep a good man down. Ruler of the kings of the earth, every one of these kings who says, you have to worship me, you have to worship me, emperors Nero and Domitian and all the others, you have to worship me. Jesus rules over those kings of the earth. Jesus rules over those kings of the earth. Bow and worship King Jesus. The act of worshiping King Jesus in the face of persecution is the mightiest act of defiance you could ever exude. Get your heart ready to bow before King Jesus in restaurants, coffee shops. Bow before King Jesus in Super One aisles. Bow before King Jesus on Superior Street and in Canal Park and online. Bow before King Jesus wherever publicly you find yourself. Do not fall into the evil American trap to keep your Christianity private. There's no such thing as private Christianity. It doesn't exist. If you have only a private Christianity, you don't have any Christianity. This vision of the triune glory that John gives to the first century church is how to comfort and embolden a church in crisis. It is what I need right now. It's what you and I need together. Third, transforming love. Look at the second half of verse 5. To him who loves us, persecution for your faith doesn't mean God quit loving you. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, this is preaching the gospel, and made us a kingdom. Do you remember Daniel 2, that little tiny kingdom not made with hands that comes flying down and hits the feet of the statue representing all the kingdoms of the earth? We're that little rock. That's us. We're the kingdom. 
made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're not just forgiven of our sins and sent off with a pat on our head and hopefully we'll go on not to sin anymore. No, no. We are cleansed by his blood, then made citizens of the heavenly kingdom, in fact, called to be priests to his God and Father, bringing him glory and honoring his dominion forever and ever. As priests, what do we offer? We're not going to offer lambs and bulls and goats any longer. We're not going to come and offer our good works. That's a blasphemous offense to Jesus and the good works that we are saved by. Of course we're saved by good works, just not our own. And we dare not add any of our own to it. What do we offer as priests before the Lord now and forever? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I'm yours, Lord. I'll live any way you want me to. I'll do anything that you want me to do. I'm very happy to be living in Duluth, Minnesota in 2022. I'm very happy to be living among these people. I'm very to be happy to be this age. I'm very happy to have the opportunities that I have, the gifts and life experiences, background that I have. None of it's wasted. Use me however you want. Don't pass me by. Let your Holy Spirit work in my life so that what I do counts for eternity. I offer you my life. Finally, triumphant arrival. This is how John comforts the church in crisis. Total grace, triune glory, transforming love, and finally, triumphant arrival. Verses 7 and 8, behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is the whole summary of the book of Revelation, isn't it? Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. So clouds encircling the whole world, and enough of the glory of Christ coming bodily, so that wherever there are eyes open around the globe, they're all going to see Christ at the same time. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even though there's going to be this wailing, even so, I agree. Amen. Here is John writing in verse 7 of the second coming of Christ, and he's basing, he's basing this statement that the tribes of the world will see Christ as he comes back in glory and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. That was fulfilled. John told us in his gospel in John 19, when Jesus hung upon the cross, the crown piercing his brow, the nails piercing his ankles and wrists, the spear piercing his side. John 19 says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones were broken. And another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. But now John says, in the spirit, there's a second fulfillment in which that passage from Zechariah 12, 10, they will look on the one whom they have pierced and they will see Christ coming and his scars will still be on his wrist and his ankle. His scar will still be in his side. His scars will still be on his brow, but they will be fully healed because he will come back fiercely as the lamb who had been slain. Now he's alive again and he comes back in wrath and in holy fury and justice. 
But they will look, the tribes of the world will look at Christ and they will have this sinking, undescribable, horrific feeling that it is now too late. We pierced him with our lies. We pierced him with our impurity. We pierced him with our boredom with him. We pierced him with our self-righteousness and our covetousness and our pride and every other dishonor and sin. We pierced him with all of that. But he comes back now not patiently to proclaim the free, open welcome of the offer of the gospel any longer, but to bring about judgment for those who pierced him, but then did nothing more with him. You know to be among this group of wailing people at the end times, you simply have to do nothing with Jesus. Just ignore him. You do nothing with Jesus, you'll be among the tribes wailing when he comes back because it'll be then too late. This passage and many like it in the book of Revelation has served like a catapult launching missionary enterprise around the world, launching evangelistic conversations with the lost in your family, launching people into boldness in sharing the love of Christ because we're still in this sweet, brief moment between now, the very second that you hear my voice, and that moment when Christ comes back being seen by every eye as the glorious, exalted, judging Lamb. And there is this still this moment by which anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Still there's this patient, fleeting moment by which anyone who calls on the name of the Lord might be saved. That's how you comfort and enliven and empower and energize a crisis church according to the Spirit of the living God who speaks through John. And someone might say, I hear and receive your total grace, John. I believe and bow before his triune glory that you've shown us. I have been transformed myself by such transforming love. And I, too, feel the weight of his certain coming, his terrible and triumphant coming. But on the earth and in my life, there are powers. There's demonic powers. There's president and king powers. There's cultural powers. There's societal powers. There's family powers. There's fear powers and guilt powers at work inside me. There's a general curse of death on the earth and it's affecting my body. It's affecting things falling apart. It's affecting things going always wrong when I, when I pray and ask you to make things go right. I'm discouraged, Lord, because all of these powers seem to be saying the very opposite of what you're saying, that you are the hand that rocks eternity and therefore you're the hand that rules the world. John feels that, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
It's almost as if the Spirit of God takes over John's pen or his quill, his voice, and utters directly through John a word to gently correct that question. Look at verse 8. This is God himself speaking to us, not just to the first century church, but to this church today and to you and me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, which means any other thing with any other letter between Alpha and Omega, I rule over them too. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. And I give myself the name, the Almighty. The title John gives himself, rather the title God gives himself through John is the Almighty. It's in Greek, Pantokrator, universal Lord. Pantokrator, or translating a more familiar Hebrew term, El Shaddai, the Almighty. Which doesn't mean, don't picture it this way, this is a corrective for an error thinking about God. It doesn't mean God is the most powerful among lots of other powers. That's not what it means. It's not a comparative where it says lots of other powers are on the earth, but God is the strongest of them all. That's not what it means. It means all the other powers come from God. He's the almighty God. Not the most mighty God, the almighty God. Pantocrator, universal Lord. There's no other lords. All other lords are counterfeits and impostors. I alone am Lord. This is what this means. The church was in crisis in the first century. They needed a comforting word, a vision of God, and out of that, the gospel, and from the, the gospel, a call to live a life radically transformed by that gospel, which is what that gospel always does in the life of a person who receives it. Powerfully, wonderfully, gloriously, our church is divided today, and how desperately pastors and elders and deacons and church leaders and teachers and Bible study leaders and ministers of every sort and kind, members of churches and those considering membership, those who are dabbling and toying and thinking about the things of God, those who are being drawn by their dreams, drawn by by television commercials which pop an idea in their mind or drawn by a text that surprisingly arrives and sends them thinking Godward. All those that God is drawing to himself, all those over which he claims to be Lord, that group of people must receive this comfort that comes from this vision of total grace and triune glory and transforming love and terrible and triumphant return of Christ yet to come. 160 years ago, America was divided much as it is right now. The Civil War had just gotten over. The principles behind and dividing the country during the Civil War are the exact same principles as that divide the country today. Exact same. The very mindset that's godless and dehumanizing that says an African-American person can be owned as chattel is the exact mindset, godless and dehumanizing, that says the preborn is not yet a person worthy of honor and respect. 
It's the exact same mindset. Precisely. That same division, 1865, was sought to be fixed by man-centered means. Poets would write poems trying to pull the country back together, talking about the union, talking about the things we had in common, the grief over mothers who had brothers fighting on different sides of the north and south against each other. So poets would write sentences like this, even though this sentence is full of error. Trying to exalt motherhood, one poet wrote, famously, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Moms, we love you and we prize you. Motherly women, We praise God for you. We see in your beauty, your strength, your wisdom, your faithfulness, your loyalty, your humility, your godliness, a reflection of God himself, and we cherish you for it. But moms and motherly women, we need to be loved the way John loves his crisis church, the way the Spirit is loving us. We need moms who will say often over us and sing over us and pray over us and live out before us the sentence, the hand that rocks eternity is the hand that rules the world. Not my hand that just rocks this cradle. Moms and motherly women who've absorbed the first answer to Heidelberg's question, And are living it out before us and commending it to us as the next generation and the ones under their motherly care. What is your only comfort in life and death? Receive this as your own, dear ones. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. The hand that rocks eternity is the hand that rules the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Revelation chapter 1, 4 through 8, and thank you for its richness. Thank you for its power to comfort the first century church and us. Thank you so much for your ruling of eternity, you who were, who was, and who is, and who is to come. Thank you for your sevenfold spirit. Thank you for your son, ruler of the kings on the earth, firstborn from the dead, and faithful witness. Thank you now for the way that you will bless on this day, specifically moms and motherly women, to be prized and valued and cherished as your good and beautiful design. Where the world devalues motherhood and women in general, we would cherish and prize and uphold our wives, our daughters, our mothers and grandmothers. Lord, would you bless now the meditation, the receiving, the increase of faith in our hearts that your word will achieve. 
as we respond to you in singing this song and as we go through the rest of our Mother's Day and the week that unfolds and the life that you have unfolding for us, even as we may enter persecution unbeknownst to us, you have equipped us from Revelation chapter 1, and I thank you for it. In Jesus' precious name we pray and now sing. Let's stand together.